being at the whim of the world early is a kind of a good way to build resolve, I believe. And also have you have a tremendous amount of empathy, which then you can use to be a better artist in how you tell other people's stories. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate, and this is the Freelance Founders Podcast, where we talk to creatives who have designed their own careers. We're so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible journeys with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Freelance Founders Podcast. Today, I am speaking with photographer Andre Lero. Welcome, Andre. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, Kate. How you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Super excited to be chatting with you, and let's just get started. So we always ask this in every episode of our podcast, what is your very first freelance rate? I think it might have been zero. It might have been nothing. I think I might have done a bunch of things for free. Yeah, the first big freelance job I can think of was I graduated from the University of Florida. And when I was there, I was a tour guide that worked through the Alumni Association. And every year, the Alumni Association to get like new students in, they would like offer like T-shirts that were like beat Arkansas, like whoever we were playing for home games. And to like let you know about it, if you like came as a freshman, you get like a poster for your room and then like they'd run a bus ad. So someone asked me if I wanted to do that to like photograph and design it. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I figured it out. The most painful part of that whole process was on the phone with the printer, like not understanding how to like get my layer ready to export. I think they paid me $1,500 for that. The photos and the design and then the usage was like infinite because it was like on a bus and also Mm -hmm. like in a bunch of dorm rooms. So I don't even understand how I could have. Just It was wild. But before that, I did a bunch of things for free to try to figure it out or like maybe graduation photos for like $40. That's actually really cool. You started in university and started doing your passion from the gate. So that's great. Can you share a little bit more about your career and your story? Yeah, I am from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. Fun fact, the first place we lived when we moved to America, my mom and I, was actually New York for a couple months. And then I grew up in South Florida. I had the opportunity to like live in a warm suburb. So we just play basketball and run around all the time. But as you get older, it's one of those things where you understand like how a lack of public transportation can be tough. And so that's why I think going to college in Gainesville and living in New York were really good for my career as a visual artist. In Gainesville, I could bike most places I needed to go in 20 minutes, which is pretty good. You can get a bike like, I don't know, you get a bike for like $30 if someone's selling it. So like as a, I was a journalism major and I worked on my student paper it was easier for me to like get around. Now that I live in New York, when I first moved here, I lived in my godfather's attic and I would take the train, which is not like a, like a gremlin situation. Like he had like a room in the attic and I would take the train in like end to end. And it was nice because no matter what time I finished, like I remember sometimes like taking photos at like, I used to take a lot of event photos to like make money going to event and end at like two o'clock in the morning and I could still take the train back. So yeah, I would say that like my early career was just all, as always been a practice in accessibility and something I'm really thankful for. So at high school, I started taking photos because I took an intro to journalism class and I really enjoyed that. And we had a, just like a little photo section. So I think one section we had disposable cameras, then they were given film cameras. And so at the end of that year, I made like a yearbook for my friends. I thought it was just like cool and dumb. I made it with like really thick construction paper and bound it. And the following year, I started doing theater. And my theater teacher apparently used to teach photography there. 
And he noticed that I was enjoying photos and he gave me his old Benolta SRT 101, this film camera. And I would walk to this Walgreens that was like a mile from my house and I would buy film at the Walgreens or get my film developed whenever they had BOGO deals, which was like probably once a month. So I'd like hold up a bunch of film and then hand it off. But high school was when I like started to just fall in love with capturing people, I think. But also pretty early, I think I learned because I'd only have like one or two really good photos on a roll of 24, Mm -hmm. just like that I needed to keep practicing. So that was the first part. And then when I went to college, I just studied journalism. And so I did some photojournalism and really enjoyed it. And I think the thing I liked is those classes were just innately smaller because not a lot of people took PhotoJ. And so we would do reviews together. We'd like sit and just project work and like talk about it. And our class story was like two, three hours. And it was like a nice moment of camaraderie, you know? Obviously, you're known for portraits. Could you just tell us a little bit more about how you decided to start shooting portraits? I know you said you took graduation photos, but what gravitated you towards shooting portraits amongst anything else? It's funny. You said graduation photos. My first memory of that is my friend Michaela. We met before college. Florida had like an outstanding African-American scholars program, which helpful, also kind of weird. But we met there when we were like 16 or 17 and when I ended up going to University of Florida together. And so our senior year, we're about to graduate and she asked me to take photos for her whole sorority. And this is this memory I have. I remember this time I, I literally just overslept. I don't know what happened. I had a friend who was assisting me, Marjorie. She was there. All like 15 of these women were there and they were like, yo, <laughs> they were so bad. And I felt so bad at Michaela. And so I remember I did, I did it the next day for free. The point of that story is that like bad things happen. You can still, you can still be professional. It's okay. Just learn from it. I think that the thing that inspires me the most are the people around me. I'm always really interested to hear like, where are you from? Where do you live? What brought you there? Like what's on your mind or your heart? Like a lot of my projects, whether it was nation of newcomers, which was about when you immigrated to America, not if you're a first generation or fifth, but like what that story was like. And that was because at that point we had a lot of anti-immigration talk from the president. We had a lot of people talking about like things they didn't understand. And as someone who's immigrated here, I promise you it is not an easy process. So it was a cool project to do. When I went to Alaska with the North Face, I like made this project that was called The Last Expanse that was about like why people live here, what the Gwich'in people, what their daily life is like. Just because I think often that my energy has shifted into just taking a one-off portrait into something that tells a full story and explains to people why something is important. And I think that the portraits at the beginning of that, because it's like a way for me to really listen to people, I'm like really obsessed with body language and what motivates folks. If you can take their photo and like they trust you, something really incredible happens because you get this ability to capture them sometimes in moments of vulnerability and in between moments. And that to me is like more exciting. It just feels different, you know, and there's like something infinitely complex about that. Do you feel like the relationship between the people you're shooting and you is a really important element to have when you're taking photos? Because it's an intimate experience being shot, I think. Yeah, it's weird. A disservice that we've done is that we made photography more accessible, which is amazing. I love that. But then folks got cameras on their phones, really excited. I think that what folks misunderstood, and it just it's taking a while to get, is like, So much of what you get for it to be good starts with this like deep sense of care and your relationship to the subject. What does that mean? I taught a black and white photography class a couple years ago at LaGuardia Community College, and it was really fun. We like had studio time. But the thing is, I always gave my students the same assignment. 
like they had a different assignment. So one thing every week, and that was they had to bring me back a photo from their neighborhood every week, something that they saw. And the idea was just to get used to the idea that the access you have is like your biggest tool. So the relationship with your subject is big. And that's why sometimes these like quick photo shoots you have can be really stressful because you're trying to figure out a way to like build rapport really fast because you gotta, you gotta have this person trust that you have their best interest at heart. What was your first big shoot? I remember when I photographed Mike Conley. I like Mike Conley. I'm a big basketball fan, and I photographed him for when I used to work at Walker & Company. It was a startup that's goal was to make health and beauty simple for people of color. Or a different time, also at Walker & Company, I got to go photograph the draft. I think for me, I always think of everything as a step to something else. So, like, everything before me seems big. But it's also very exciting. There's definitely an element of excitement that you feel like this is a big shoot. I fully agree. So then I want to get kind of into your style of shooting. How did you find your type of photography style? So the first photographer's work that I like immediately learned about uh, were two folks, Andy Barron and Jonathan Mannion. Now, Jonathan and Andy are both music photographers. And so the two first albums that I think I owned as like a preteen were like Jay-Z's Black Album and Switch with the Beautiful Letdown. And both of them were photographers for those two people. And so I first saw their work because I was excited to see more people that I like liked. I'm like just trying to see more of their humanity, which I think is really cool. One of my like, I think goals that I wrote when I was 18 was I wanted to go on tour with a musician between their first and second album. Cause so I think that's right when you like really pop. And so I think immediately I really gravitated to like Andy's work was is like very reactionary, but he's very calm. Even when you meet him, you can feel it. like his work is like, it's almost like you can tell people almost forget he's there. There's energy, there's truth and honesty, like, but it's, it's very reactionary in this way that I think is really nice. And then Jonathan's work is like this very technical, like I place you here. I like this perfectly. And I think there's somewhere in between for me, there's times when my work is very technical and very beautiful. The light is, and other times it's like, we just, you just react. I think starting with that, then moving on to just taking photos of my friends on film, then moving to being really reactionary in college. I really started to develop more style in New York because I think in college, I was just like, what's the, I'm trying to react to what's around me. I just need to figure out the best way to get a photo of what is before me. And so as a result, I don't think that I like really actively thought about style. I just thought like, what's a photo that can reasonably run in the paper. That was the same thing when I was in Chicago for that summer. I think I actually got to think about it a little bit in that 2012 summer. I was an intern at the Chicago reader. Mm -hmm. And so I was photographing things sometimes for covers, like one or two covers, not not that often, but like things that were inside stores. And I was just kind of taking a little bit more time to think. But really, it started to shift like in 2014 when I moved to New York because I started to like first try to emulate style. I saw other people, but then I like started to just see things a little differently. Like besides that, I started to really like people in space, balancing with color, finding some like calm in my images and just making it feel really intimate. I wanted, I always wanted people to feel like they were there when they saw stuff that I was doing. And I think that as a result, I've like started to edit in ways that just feel more natural to me, but it started out with these two photographers and then there were so many other on the way. Dayoon Ivory impacts me a lot. Like I just, I think I spend a lot more time looking at people's work and for me to be like, I don't like that. I do like that. Or, Oh, I think this is good, but it's not for me. Or I think this is bad, but I, might have taken something from this. And so it's just, it's been like a very slow process, but I think it's also continued to change. So yeah, I mean, I just would say that like the style was kind of like born with these two photographers, then bred in this like weird journalism space. Cause like, I don't even know how to use Photoshop when I graduated. We like essentially learned in journalism school to like only 
bring up exposure and like sharpen and you export or crop if you need to. And so I guess Instagram was important to me because it was this period where I was like, oh, like I'm just making stuff to make. And then also going back to Walker and Company, Walker and Company is really important for me because my creative director, Mari Shibley, and I had a one-on-one every week. And so anytime I photographed anything, I would like have to make a plan. All part of my job, I'd scout, I'd make a lighting plan, and then I would go photograph it. We'd have like a pre and a postmortem. So there was a lot more active, engaged thinking. So it, it seems like you've done a lot of studying and obviously also experimenting after work or whenever with your friends to really figure out, oh, this is really speaking to me. That's really great. I guess this is the case for anybody who's a photographer, but when you're taking portraits, like when do you know I got the shot? It really depends on the person. I was actually talking, talking to my friends about this. I worked on this job last year. We worked with this child actor that had never been like worked before mm-hmm. and they were very tense. I'm not sure I ever got the photo, to be honest with you. For the most part, it's like, let's if I'm photographing you for 30 minutes, it's somewhere around like that 12 to 14 minute mark. Because you're still kind of tight, but you're starting to loosen. So I'm getting this weird mix of, like, who you came to be presented as. And, like, you loose before you kind of get toward the end and you, people run out of steam. Because they try to come and, like, and be really prepared. Their energy is just off. Unless they're a star and they're used to being photographed all the time. Knowing you have it is it just depends each time. But, like, it's really that mix of you're still prepared, but you're loose enough to, like, present yourself people take direction pretty well. And sometimes for me, after I photograph for like a couple minutes, if I show someone the images, they're more likely to be like, oh, oh, okay. So when I give you feedback, I'm like, oh, I need you to just like take a deep breath or drop your shoulders or something like that. It's easier for you to take that feedback. If I show you a photo, you look like this and you're like, what? Giving people a reason for doing stuff is really, really helpful. When they have a reason and when they have your trust, then you're more likely to get the photo. And then I feel like when I have it, I think I try to show some excitement so they feel like the time they're spending there wasn't wasted. I feel like you would be really comfortable on set. You would make anybody, I feel like, feel really comfortable. I try to. I mean, it's really hard. I'm sure. If it's just me and you, that's different. But often now, I will be on set and I'm like in charge of a bunch of people. But like, I'm trying to set the tone. And it is stressful. Like, I, I just did this job that we're finishing up today. So it should be out soon with the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. And it was a short video piece with a photo component that I directed and then some photos I took. It's a colon cancer PSA. So one of the guys, Mel D. Cole, this incredible photographer, is talking about how his dad was diagnosed. But because they caught it, he didn't die. Wow. And, like, what that means. For those folks, a lot of those folks are media people. They're used to it. But for some of them... They had prepped, we gave them notes and stuff, but it's still a stressful thing to talk about. And so making sure that they knew that we were present for them was huge. Like getting a teleprompter, asking them if that felt right, making changes, not rushing them. If they can nail those, you don't have to do anything else. And like, that's something I learned, like working on set for United Shades with W. Kamau Bell, like just understanding um, so much of it is like we had this conversation this year where he's like, regardless of what's happening around today, I don't get to tell the subject that I'm interviewing or maybe the people that are watching the show later are like, oh, I was having a bad day. It's like, I'm here to do this thing, so I need to do my role and do the best I can to empower the person who's going to say the important thing. I definitely have been on my fair share of sets, and definitely I think the photographer carries a lot of that, bringing the energy and setting the tone for the shoot. I've been on sets when the photographer is super chill and just like, wants to be there and do his own thing. And everybody else is kind of follows the lead, you know, and, but then I've also had really high energy sets, but that's definitely set because of the, the photographer. So I definitely think 
you guys are like the leaders of the set when it comes to to being present. That's super important. One thing I wanted to point out, talking about sets, my friend Aaron says this. Aaron is an AC, an assistant camera, and he was like, it's so important that you do not transfer negative energy further down the line to people. And everybody said that to me, I think it was a year or two ago, and it always stuck with me. So if anyone listening to this, like, Remember, especially in the creative process, don't make other people feel crappy. Just try your best as long as it's a problem that you can solve. Hold it, solve it, and keep it moving. Because if we keep passing on our stress to other people, it makes the day so much longer and makes us do emotional labor past the labor we already have to do, which sucks. So you were born in Kingston, Jamaica, immigrated to New York, and then moved down and grew up in Florida. And now you're back in Brooklyn. How has your upbringing influenced your career? A plus of being an immigrant that was poor to whatever version of middle class exists now. It's important, I think, for people to learn that they're not all that important, to be super honest with you. It's kind of a specific thing, but like if you come to America, you see your mom working really hard, and then you like know that on Saturdays you have to get up early to get on the public bus to go like two miles, but it takes two hours to go get stuff that you need and do all the, like all places in America get at this is just reminding you that like, do you have a place in the space and you have to like operate within it? That can be a very difficult thing, but at the same time, it creates a really a deep appreciation for me for all the things. Like there's a John Mulaney joke from a couple specials ago where when he opens, he just says, thank you for coming. It's so easy to do nothing. And I really appreciate you for choosing to do something with me. And so with my subjects, I say that all the time. And I think it impacts my work a lot because, like, I want to, in the words of Jermaine Cole, the American poet, I want to work on songs that raise the hair on my arm. I think in the upbringing, there is interacting with a lot of different people. And I think it's important to know early in your life that you're not the center of the universe. If you can do that, or if you can try to practice that, sometimes it's difficult for us, all of us. But it allows me to try to be a better artist. Like I sometimes can be stressed about a thing or frustrated. And then I'll remind myself, like the goal here is to go capture this person or capture this thing. And if I can just like get myself in a space to center myself a little bit, I can still focus myself on this North star of this person. I can work more easily that way. I think since I occupy this like quasi editorial and commercial space with lifestyle in the middle with lifestyle in the middle, um, I have an opportunity to make thoughtful, reactionary things or very planned, happy accidents, you know? Mm-hmm. And those can start with just recognizing I'm not the center of the universe. And going to journalism school is a good way to back that up. Being at the whim of the world early is a kind of a good way to build resolve, I believe, and also have you have a tremendous amount of empathy, which then you can use to be a better artist in how you tell other people's stories. I love what you were saying that we, you have let go of not being the center of the world, setting aside any kind of thing that you're really focused on to capture that person or that thing. I think that's really important because I do think sometimes people get in their heads and then it impacts their work. It's tough because you need to be validated as an artist, but at the same time, like without the trust of your subjects, you, you're not really in, in a lot of good places. I remember... I had to photograph these Olympic fencers when I was at Walker and Company, and I had a plan for how I wanted to photograph them, but it was really more rooted in how I wanted to photograph them and not how they were. I remember as I was photographing them, one of them was very polite, but he was like, uh, and the other one was like, this sucks. <laughs> and I think about that a lot because I just didn't do a great job with those photos. 
And just understanding that, like, since I didn't do a great job, like, how can I grow to better listen to my subjects and anticipate their needs? And that starts with, as they increase, I have to decrease just to make sure that they have the space to feel like they can express themselves. I agree 100% on that. That selflessness really comes through. No one can be selfish on a set by any means. You were an Adobe creative resident. Can you tell us more about that in that experience? I remember I was at Fashion Week. Tumblr used to have, a, or maybe they still do, a creator program that my friend Valentine Uhalski used to run. And they had this partnership where they would, Tumblr would bring photographers and artists to Fashion Week and they'd make stuff and then Tumblr would highlight it. And it was really, really cool. So I got to do it this time. And I remember my first day. And some were just like taking a break and just like, oh, God. And picking up my phone, checking my email, getting an email from this woman, Heidi Voltmer, who's a friend of mine now, lovely person. She emails me. I'm really confused. I like look her up. I'm like, this is definitely fake. And we like do a phone call the following week, talk about the residency. I write this idea for this project called Echo Chamber that because this was just after Trump was elected. So it was this like, are we in that, like digital echo chambers? You know, I was like, uh, you know, make this really meaningful piece. Ended up turning into this project called Stories from Here, which actually was a little bit calmer. It was about it was like a series of micro stories based on a sense of place. So I went to places where I, um, in America that I thought had like conflicting concepts. So in El Paso, Texas, one of the first places I went, El, Ta- El Paso is statistically the safest city in America. But at that point, the president and the vice president were like, this is the beachfront for legal immigration. It's overrun with dangerous people or going to New Haven or Providence and speaking with students and local people to like understand the relationship between the Ivy League school and the city. Then like two of the ones I got to do is I did the did one with some high school students and I thought that was really cool because I got the opportunity to talk to them about like the whole project was about how you establish your sense of place. But when you're in high school, you like are aware enough about place, but you don't have access to really change anything. So you're just mm-hmm. stuck. And so I was curious how they responded to that. And the last one was with a women a collaboration with the Women's Prison Association where we talked to two formerly incarcerated women about what it was like coming back into mainstream society and what that transition was like for them. So the residency for me, after like I interviewed with Heidi, we talked and then I submitted a proposal and then we like I went through a bunch of interviews. It was a really good process for me. And then I had the opportunity to work on stuff I thought was cool, which was awesome. I love doing that. And so I got to like photograph, I got to go around travel, photograph stuff. I would like tack on parts of my project while doing client work. Like they let us do some client work still as long as we finished the residency stuff. And so I remember doing something for Amex and like being in Chicago. And then I had people in my cohort that were so awesome. Like it was such a talented class of people. And it was something I was super excited about because whenever we talked to each other, it was cool to like see each other's work and like be present and supportive of each other because it was a really specific process. That year they had some people, they had uh, Jason Levine teach me Premiere Basics and Audition Basics. I still use some of that stuff I learned today. And so it was just a really powerful time for me because I like just tried to soak up as much as I could and make as many things as I could. How long was the residency? It was a year for me. So it sounded like it was a great year for you to network and also be able to really form and structure like what you were really interested in and the type of style of shooting. That's awesome. Could you share a couple tips for up and coming photographers? Like what would be your top two to three tips? Number one, your access is everything. Whatever you have access to, photograph it. If you and you're comfortable, if there is a loved one that is in the hospital and you don't know if you're going to get to see them again, those people, every single person is interesting and their story is important. 
And when you can return to a story again and again, you get better. You notice things you didn't see before, how the light hits stuff in a certain time of the day, how someone responds when they're excited or when they feel not cared for. Like there's so many things. So make sure that you understand the access you have and like continue to make sure that you're giving yourself as many opportunities to storytell as you can. Two is like really simple. Try a ton of stuff. Take a ton of photos. Like if you do it once and don't like it, change something and try it again. But giving yourself the opportunity to try a lot of things is tremendously valuable. The best camera you have is the one you have with you. And so just trying your best to figure out ways to isolate what's important is important is like valuable. What I mean by that is my mom is big on buying books when she thinks that I'm interested in something. So for example, I think when in high school, when she knew that I was starting to get into photography, she got me like a very basic Kodak book. And the first line of it, I'll never forget it. And as I say that, I'm going to misquote it, I'm sure, is the camera is designed to be like the eye, but unlike the eye, it can't differentiate what's important. And so it's the job of the photographer through aperture, cropping, angles to isolate and reveal what's important to the viewer. Tip three is like, look as much as you take photos. Like instead of the prey and spray, which is where you just point your camera, just shoot all around, like maybe photograph for 15 minutes and just sit. I did a story last year for the Wall Street Journal about a woman who's a breast cancer survivor and like also was impacted by 9-11. I think she was in a building right near one of the towers. With her, I spent the whole, like most of the day with her and I like helped her put books up or just like kind of sat and watched her. Cause like you start to pick up on things and you understand better what you're looking for as someone who's capturing stuff, if that makes sense. Like you're only trying to get what you think you're going to get because more often than not, that's not the best thing. I feel like tip three is my favorite tip. And I love that you went and just like sat with a woman and hung out with her for the day and then was able to find what you were looking for and really capture what was important. So we're wrapping up. I have three questions I ask everybody. The first one is, how do you measure success and what does success mean to you? Success is taking care of yourself and the people that you care about. So that is twofold. It is making enough money to make sure that if something happens, that you can take care of the people around you. Like it's not everyone. It's a limited group of people. Number two of success is, you know, making sure that you're successful enough to be a safety valve for your community. And then also success is feeling seen by the people that you respect. I think those are the three most important things. Feeling validated, being able to take care of the people that you care about. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, being able to be a resource for your community if you can. Those are really great ways for you to be measuring for success. And I think that being a resource for your community is a really important one. I feel like not a lot of people see that as a way to measure success, but I think it's a, a really great way to feel like you made it. And then the next one is, what is your tagline or mantra, if you have one? It'll be all right. Figure out way to have ways to have grace with yourself and with the people around you. It'll keep us alive longer and make these projects better and make us be able to collaborate further. That's it. I think that's perfectly said. It'll be fine. You're creating beautiful things and memorable things. And you're able to educate people, which is incredible. And it's an incredible gift to be able to have those. To finish, what is your ballpark rate now? We started out with what was your first rate? What's your ballpark oh, rate now? Oh, girl, I don't know. Here's what I'll tell people. If you are a neighborhood pie shop, like my, my friends at PD's, shouts PD's Pie, 
this gonna sound weird, but sometimes I almost prefer doing stuff for free that I think is helpful mm-hmm. because then I won't have to like stress out about if somebody has two hundred dollars. And two hundred dollars is not a small amount of money. Let me be very clear. But if you're doing something like sometimes I like to make things for people in my community, and I know that they're tight on their money, it actually gives me more control to tell them I'll do it for free because then I can say I'm not doing that, and they can't say anything to me, which sounds weird, right? Like you want to give someone graduation photos now or photos of them being pregnant or of their children or something, I'll do it for free. I love and you care about you. Maybe you supported me at some time or I like what you're doing. It's easy because it just allows me the control of my time, which I think is the most important because like you should have personal projects mm-hmm. and you should have a sliding, sliding scale. So like, I mean, if I'm doing like a billboard campaign, that's going to go all over part of America. Like it could be like $70,000 for the day. But if I'm doing something for my for my friend or like a family member, I'll just do it for free. A, it depends on the usage. How's the image being used? B, it depends on my time. Am I editing the photos? Am I doing a ton of pre-work? So am I building decks, building mood boards, finding models? And then someone's like, how could it cost 20K or you know, $35,000? Okay, well, if it's for a pharmaceutical company and this increases their sales by 15%, they just made five to $20 million from this one campaign in a short period of time. So it just really depends. Thank you so much, Andre. It's been so great speaking with you today. I hope so. Like, oh, it has. It's been great. Thank you for listening to my chat with Andre Laro. You can find out more about Andre by visiting his website, andrelaro.com. To learn more about Freelance Founders, head over to our website, freelancefounders.com, and follow us on Instagram at Freelance Founders. We hope you'll share, subscribe, rate, and review the Freelance Founders Podcast, which is available for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and have a great day.